the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but he said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe, and here's verse 11 picks up our text for today. Woe to them, for they have walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn twice dead and uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars from whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all of convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they committed in such an ungodly way, and all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against them. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. I want to start this morning with a couple of bold statements, okay? And, and I know that it could be an anticlimax by saying it's going to be a bold statement. If you're like, I've heard that, okay? But I'm hoping that you understand this is a bold statement. The first bold statement is this. The church is the most powerful group of people on the face of the planet. The church, not the Republican National Convention, not the Democratic National Convention, not the country, not our country, not the superpower that we are, not China, not any other group of people assembled under a banner is more powerful than the church of Jesus Christ. You know why? Because Jesus, upon Peter's confession, he said, the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. I will build it. So here's the good news. When you turn on the news and you are frightened by what's going on in the world, you just know something. If you're part of the church, the gates of hell are, will not withstand against the onslaught of the kingdom of God advancing through his church. Big news. Most powerful organization of people in the world is the church of Jesus Christ. Do you know why? It's not because we're swell, okay? It's not. It's not because we're awesome people. It's because we have the gospel, and it's the power of God to salvation. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. It's, it is the power of God. So the, make that huge statement. The church is the most powerful group of people on the face of the planet. Bold statement number two. But the church is the most endangered group of people on the face of the planet. Now, when I say endangered, you immediately think of like endangered animals. I'm not saying endangered in the sense like, what you think about an endangered animal is like, oh, they might become extinct, right? If you ever go to a zoological park or um, any type of zoo or aquarium, they'll show you some exotic fish or exotic animal. And it's like, these are endangered. Well, what, does that, what does that mean? They're like, we need to protect these things because they're going to go extinct. Well, I want you to know something. That is not what I mean when I mean the church is endangered. you know why? Because Jesus will build the church. Nothing stops Jesus. He's going to build it. So we're not endangered in the sense like we might pass away. Okay? But we are in danger because we face in danger because we face danger on every front. We face danger as a church from within, and we face danger as a church from without. 
Now, in this particular situation in Jude, the, the, the major part, the major danger that the church is facing is inward. They have these false teachers who have crept in. We just read that. And they're teaching, a fa- they're teaching falsehood. And they're trying to get the, the attitudes of their hearts, which are against the word of God, to infiltrate and to destroy the church that is, has this gospel message, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. So I want you to know this. The church is the most powerful group of people on the face of the planet because of Jesus and his gospel. We uniquely have it. However, we are the most in danger, not that we're on the face of extinction, but we are facing dangers from within and without because there are powers and principalities and demonic forces at work against us. But we don't fight in our own strength, and we don't fight with our own message, but we fight with the gospel of Jesus, this life-changing, powerful bomb of a message that can change lives and hearts instantaneously because it's the power of God. But we face danger all the time. You want to give me, you want to give you an example of how the church is both powerful and endangered? Here we go. Every year, this is according to Tom Rayner, who's the president of Lifeway Christian Resources. If you want to see the building, just go to Nashville, okay? He said this. He said, uh, using some valid research, about four to 7,000 churches close their doors every year. I did some math. On the most conservative estimate, that used to be like this very week, 76 churches closed. And that makes, oh, man. Oh, man, it's, what's happening? God said he was going to build his church. I want you to know something. A lot of times those churches that are closing are ones that sin had been left unchecked and the Bible had been forgotten and God's spirit has just left. If you want to give an example of God's spirit leaving the building, just look in the seven letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation when he takes his lampstand, which represents his spirit, away. It can't happen, folks. I've seen it. The church that's there, I mean, like, I'm not saying like it just disappeared, okay? The building's still there. The sign's still there. Even some people are still there, but the Spirit of God is not there. And these false teachings, these false teachers, they, whether they intentionally or not, they seek their own gain. They seek to teach things that are wrong to endanger the church. But I want you to know something. As these thousands of churches die every year, there are new ones coming up everywhere. And the gospel and the, Lord, the church of the Lord Jesus is fine. It's growing all over the planet. And the gospel is not in danger no matter who comes to power in this country no matter what happens throughout the geopolitical system, the church is fine. But see, there's this tension. Here's the tension. We're the most endangered people on the planet, and we're the most secure people on the planet, and here's where the tension happens. We have to be on guard because we don't want our fellowship right here, our local expression of the universal church, we don't want the sins that these false teachers are putting out, we don't want that to infiltrate us and to come in and to destroy. That's why he's writing this letter. He's saying, be on the lookout. There are dangerous teachers, dangerous teachings, and dangerous attitudes that can infiltrate a church and take a vibrant living organism, which the church is, and kill it and strangle it. It's the most sad thing if you've ever been inside of a dead church. It's one of the saddest things in the world. 
Because we get this opportunity when we're here just to sing about the cross. And you can tell that there's been people here who have experienced the work of the cross, singing about the goodness of the cross and what Jesus has done. And then you go to a church that's dead, and you're singing about the cross, and there's like no expression, no joy, no anything. And then the pastor gets up and he preaches, and he preaches, and it's almost like everybody's looking on their watch going, for the love of Jesus, get us out of here. Please let this end. And it seems like some kind of boring infomercial for something, that, some product that the person doesn't even believe in instead of the passionate word of God. And these teachers, so I think this is a great warning for us. We need to be on the lookout. And that is what our, our, our passage today, that's where our, our major emphasis is going to be, is be on the lookout for ungodly teachers, ungodly teachings, and ungodly attitude because they are very dangerous to the church. Now, I want you to look. We're going to look at some of those, starting in verse 11. Verse 11, Jude has been talking about these false teachers, and he says, woe to them. If you use this phrase this week, somebody got hurt, okay? Like, you know what I mean? Woe to you for cutting me off in traffic. That's a pretty significant phrase, am I right? This is meant to be, he's saying, there's eternal judgment and pain coming on you, son. He says, woe to these false teachers. Oh, to be them would be awful. Woe. This is a declaration, a declaration of, of coming judgment and of, of pity for the people facing judgment. Jesus would pronounce woes on all the religious leaders and the Pharisees who seemed to be spiritual but actually were not. And so we see this. He says, woe to them. And then he talks about, he gives their characteristics and attitudes and their teachings, okay? And we see this in verse 11. For they walked in the way of Cain. Now here's the thing. To understand this letter, and especially a lot of the letters in the New Testament, you have to understand the Old Testament, okay? That's the testament that precedes this one, all right? And so here's what you need to understand, that he's talking about Cain. If we go, we want to look up where Cain is, Genesis chapter 4, the early parts of Genesis chapter 4. God, these are the, these are the children of Adam and Eve, and here's what happens. Um, Cain and Abel were asked to give sacrifices. Cain's is deemed unacceptable to God. Many people have many different reasons why that's the case, but... They just weren't, okay? They weren't acceptable. And so here's the deal. Instead of when God confronted him, instead of repenting and saying, God, I, I, let me make this right to you, you know what he does? He hates his brother. He said, look at the suck up over there. And God's all happy with his sacrifice. And pff, never seen that in like sibling rivalries, right? Never. I mean, you're always just really happy when something good happens to your sibling, right? Should be, but. That doesn't work out that way, okay? And so instead of like saying, God, how can I make amends with you and be right? What does he do? He murders his brother. And so here's an example. He gives some biblical examples. He said, look, woe to these people because they're going to be just like Cain. And what happened with Cain is he rejected God's way. He rejected God's authority. God's authority is basically, I can require whatever sacrifice I want from you, Cain. And he says, no, I'm mad at my brother. And he rages against God, which manifests itself in murder and envy. And so these particular things, he is characterizing these false teachers, Judas characterizing these false teachers as just like the Old Testament. Let me get you something. There is nothing new under the sun. There's just new ways to do it. New ways to envy people. New ways to covet. You don't believe me? We've taken our coveting and we've gone viral with it. Just go ahead. Just flip open your apps, okay? Go to Facebook, go to Twitter, go to everybody else, and you look at that. I guarantee you've done this, especially when you're having a rough week and you're looking at someone else's life and their family, and you're like, 
Man, they really got it together, and I don't. I hate that person. We've taken covening online, okay? I want you to get this idea that these people, these false teachers, are following in the line of people who've rejected God's authority. And that shows the attitude, the, the attitude of somebody who has, or an attitude that is dangerous to the church, a teaching or a teacher that's dangerous to the church. They first and foremost, they reject God's authority. And because of that, they rage against God and other people and they follow their own sinful desires. We've seen that time and time again. This is nothing new. This is reiterating so he will remember it. And so he follow. He talks about these false teachers, and they follow in the way of Cain, which is abandoning God and his authority. And then it says this. There's another attitude. And they abandon themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error. Now, that's a weird story about Balaam. It happens in Numbers chapter 22 and 23. You can write these down. We're not going to go there because I'm going to tell you about them. If you want to ch- double check me, I encourage you to do that. Go to Numbers 22 and 23 and read the story. It's very interesting. Here's what happens. This person pays, pays this, this quote-unquote prophet, a guy who looks spiritual, to go and to curse the people of Israel. Okay, and God eventually stops him by, in the most odd way possible, from being destroyed uh, because his donkey eventually talks to him, which is weird, and it's meant to be weird, and, and it stops him in his tracks. But here's the here's the main point that he's trying to get: Balaam sold out his beliefs for cash. He was a practicing religion to make money. He was a prophet for hire, a preacher for hire. And he did that in order to make money and not to follow God. Now, I want you to give you this idea. The Bible's very clear, okay, and I'm thankful for this, that, that, that preachers do, it's okay to pay a preacher, and thank you, okay? I appreciate that, all right? I know you're thinking, oh, you're doing it for gain, son, all right? But I'm just saying what you're thinking, all right? I'm picking up what you're putting down, all right? So here's the difference. I'll tell you a story about one of the guys who's my mentor in the faith. This lady came into him hot in his office one day, and it was like, I didn't like this, what you did Sunday, and I don't like how you preach this, and da, 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 and we pay you to preach. And he says, no, ma'am, you do not. And he was telling me the story. I was like, dang, that's pretty good. And he says, no, you pay me to do all the administrative work. God called me to preach. And I will preach what's in his word no matter the cost. And that's one of those moments you're like, that was good. <laughs> I don't remember that one day. Okay, maybe use it in the right context. And so I want you to get this idea. These guys, what are they doing? They are preaching for monetary gain, and they're changing their message so that they might get gain out of it, just like Balaam did. Balaam had no reason to curse Israel. He was, he was way off, and what did he do? What did he do? He did it for wicked gain financially. He did it out of greed. So there's a couple attitudes we see. Rejecting God's authority is a dangerous attitude, a dangerous teaching. Dangerous teachers reject God's authority, okay? The second thing, dangerous attitude, teachings, and teachers, here's what they do. They're they're prompted by greed and the love of money. I want you to know something. Money is not the root of all evil. The love of money is. Because the love of money can take its place on the throne of your heart very quickly. 
And Jesus would talk about that, how hard it is for a rich man to get into heaven. Do you know why? It's not because he got a lot of cash. It's because he's got his cash on the throne of his heart. And so I want you to just know that cash isn't bad. But if you love it, it's awful. And so we see this, that they are following in this way of Balaam, who sold out. He was not, he was seemed to be a man of God, but wasn't. And this, this gives us an example. I want you to show this. These, these, false, these false people who have come in, they're obviously posing as teachers, which is scary. These people who have come in are, are, are harassing the church. They're claiming to be pastors and teachers and preachers. And what, what Jude is, is trying to get us to see is not all who claim to be pastors or leaders or elders or teachers are godly ones. So the church must always be on the lookout for false teaching, false teachers, and false attitudes. And while I keep saying attitudes, here's what I want you to know. Because a lot of us, here's what we like to do. If you're like me, okay, I'm projecting myself onto you, okay, I understand that. But here's what we like to do. We like to, when we hear a message, especially if it's a hard message, which a lot of them have been hard out of Jude, okay? Been a lot of judgment. Here's what we like to do. We like to find the person, immediate person who this applies to and make it all about them so we can go, mm-hmm, amen, brother. <laughs> that is right, Matt. You tell that punk, okay? But in all actuality, these very these things began in their hearts, in these false teachers' hearts, before they manifested themselves in acting. And so here's the deal. This is not just a, this is not just a message against false teachers and teachings. This is a message against false attitudes and ungodly attitudes that we have in our heart, which we can get there really easily. We're cut from the same cloth as they are. We just are following the grace of Jesus. And so I want you to get this idea that, that we see that rejecting God's authority reject and, and following after greed are the sins that these false teachers in Jews' day have become. And these are attitudes that could affect us as well. And then we see this going on in the end of verse, verse uh, 11. It says, Woe to them, for they have walked in the way of Cain, and they have abandoned themselves for the sake of Balaam's error for cash, and they perished in Korah's rebellion. Go back to the book of Numbers. Go back, and this is another one you check out. Chorus Rebellion happens in Numbers chapter 16. And here again, it shows that these false teachers, Judas indicating these, these people who have come in and snuck in are false teachers. They have a, that people look at them as teachers or pastors or even evangelists, okay? And so we see that because here's what happened. Korah gets a group of people to rebel against Moses, and he gets these people to try to reject Moses as God's person, as God's man, as the one who God has placed authority in. Okay? Moses has no authority on his own. Moses has authority because God has given him authority. Okay? Does that make sense? I want you to understand that fact. On top of that, Korah's rebellion, they tried to go against God's man. And do you know what happened to them? Because they were going against a called out servant of God, God opened up the ground and swallowed them up whole. Now, I want to recognize this, this tension here. Jude is attacking people who claim to be false teachers, right? And at the same time, by talking about Korah's rebellion, he is going against people who reject those who God has put in authority. 
You understand how it seems, if you don't understand the, the gradation I'm making here, you can see like it kind of seems like he's talking about out of both sides of his mouth. In one sense, he's saying, don't ever question, don't, don't, don't ever go against the man of God. And the other one is, go against these false teachers who claim to be men of God. How do you reconcile these two points? And I want you to know this. It, it reconciles in the fact of this. A man of God should not be respected because of his person, but because of his doctrine and the way it works out in his life. I am 32 years old, will be 33 years old. I was born in Gainesville, Florida, which some of you really despise, okay? He who has an ear, let him hear, football people. I have no authority unless the authority has been granted to me through God, the establishment of elders in a church, which is a God-ordained authority. And secondly, I have no authority unless the authority is, is I'm, I'm teaching and proclaiming through biblical principles and living a biblical life. That makes sense? Not without, not without screwing up. No, but if you, could categorize, if you can categorize my life as the most part I'm following Jesus, that one you can look at me and the other elders and say, okay, now they have authority because God set up the, 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 the administration of his church through, through prophets, leaders, and elders, okay? That makes sense? Then you should look at that thing, but they are only as good as the fact as much as they are following Jesus because qualifications are given for elders in the Scripture, and these qualifications must be met for them to hold that office. This office is... A, a God-ordained office, and, it, and God, it's God putting power in the hands of people called out by him. You make sense? But we are also subject to live lives worthy and to teach doctrine in consistency with the Scripture because that is our only source of authority. So I want you to get this because I've heard so many people, even pastors, try to justify their behavior by, I'm a pastor, therefore, that is hogwash. Here's where here is where your power lies. If you are following the Word of God... If you, you need to, before you come against somebody who's in a spiritual position of authority, you need to ask the question, are they right before God? Are they behaving in accordance with God's word? If they are and you just don't like it, you need to change. If they are, if they, if they are not in accordance with God's word and not acting in accordance with God's word, then steps need to be taken for the problem to be addressed. Godly ways, Matthew 18 ways. For these problems to be addressed, but problems nonetheless. See, here's what happens. I want to be very clear about this because I've seen so many people abuse power. And that's what these guys are actually trying to do. They're trying to abuse their power by claiming to have this position that they don't have. The position is not theirs because the power of the gospel does not lie within them. They're abusing the gospel of Jesus for personal gain, and they are rejecting the godly authorities, which is kind of the evident here because they're following Korah's rebellion. They're rejecting the godly elders in the church in view of their dreams, and they're causing all sorts of a stir. And this is dangerous. It is dangerous when a church allows sin to go unchecked. And not only that, to let people who are not acting like godly people be in control. It's dangerous. And so we need to understand that, that these men are, they are rejecting God's authority. They are greedy, following after Balaam, and they are like Korah. They are rejecting 
the, those who God placed in authority in that church, they're rejecting those elders who are trying to lead biblically. It's dangerous. I hope we covered that. And I want you to see what, how he characterizes this danger, okay? Just you so, I'm going to show you that why this is dangerous, these attitudes, these teachings, and these teachers, why they're dangerous. Verse 12 shows us. It says, they're like hidden reefs at your love feast. So here's the, I mean, that's a lot of different stuff in here, but once you get like, they're like, love feasts are this, okay? That's, that's a weird word. I mean, a weird little phrase there, but it basically means this. The, the church used to get together and you know, we say this word, oh, there's a love on each other, okay? If you're not from the South, you're like, what does that mean? That sounds creepy, okay? But, and if you're not in ch- church culture, someone says they're going to love on you, you're like, hey, take a step back, okay? But here's the idea. They used to get together for fellowships and break bread with one another, and then those, those fellowships would usually have some type of worship element to them, and they would involve communion together, okay, what we did, all right? So not only, it wasn't just the, you know, the little tiny wafer and the thing. They would have a meal, and then they would actually have you know, bread and, and have a good time, okay? And they would love one another, and they would show their love for Jesus through these festivals that they have. And so he is saying that these people, and these were expressions of community, expressions of faith in Jesus, okay? So here's what would, here's what would happen. The, he's saying that these people are like hidden reefs or rocks in your love feast. What is that? If you ever, a reef is a coral or some type of barrier that's in the water that it protects the, or it's in front of a, usually in front of a landmass that kind of, it, it's a wall in the water that a lot of times you can't see that it kind of separates one part of the ocean from the other, okay? There's the Great Barrier Reef in Australia. Um, uh, there's, there's reefs all over the world, some in, in, um, in Florida. And so here's the idea. If you've ever been in a boat before and you're riding the boat, and all of a sudden you come to an abrupt stop. That shouldn't happen in a boat. Well, you could have hit a rock or a reef. And so many Things so many wrecks and shipwrecks and horrible calamities have been caused by hitting something that was unseen in the water. One of the famous examples of somebody running a giant ship in the ground is has been immortalized by Celine Dion and her song, okay, the Titanic. Near far wherever you are, okay, you know this, all right. And so you, you get this idea that these people are hidden, they've snuck in, and they are these rocks that are ready to shipwreck the faith of the people in the church. That makes sense? They're dangerous. And that could happen. How sad would it be if that would happen here? And that's why, we're, it's why we need these warnings, so we can constantly be on the lookout for these situations and these attitudes in our hearts and these false teachings and false teachers. Stay on the lookout for these things because they can shipwreck our church. They can shipwreck our faith. They can shipwreck the gospel witness that its hearts feel desperately needs. And so we get on, and he goes on. He can firmly, Further, he talks about them. They're hidden reefs at your love feast as they feast with you without fear. Okay? When was the last time you went to a dinner party with fear? Okay? This is not talking about just like, I'm really scared to have dinner with you. No, they are there. And what does the Bible talk about? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom in the book of Proverbs. They don't fear God. They've rejected his authority. So they're eating and they're participating in the Lord's Supper without the fear of God. You know what's very interesting? The Bible is very clear about this, that some people who were eating the Lord's Supper improperly, this is the book of 1 Corinthians, they, because they were eating the Lord's Supper improperly, which represented the gospel, some people were sick and some people died because of it. That's crazy. There's debate on what, what, what it means to eat it in an improper manner is, but the facts are this, 
these people do they not fear God and they're continually acting as if they do. And it's dangerous. He recognizes their selfishness. He recognizes that they don't fear God. Then it talks about him, further characterizing him, and he says they're shepherds feeding themselves. You know what a shepherd's job is to do? Sheep, by and large, and that's why I love the fact that we are called sheep in the Bible. Sheep are largely dumb animals. Okay? Okay? They're, it's like a giant cotton ball. It's just, it, Okay? They have to be led and protected from wolves. And, and here's the idea. These shepherds who are supposed to take care of the sheep, that's what a shepherd is supposed to do. He'd be a real bad shepherd if you sent him out with a bunch of sheep and he comes back with just this crook. He's like, dude, I don't know what happened to those things. That would be a pretty poor shepherd, right? I was like, oh, man, like I lost them. My bad. So these shepherds, not only what they're doing, and the idea is this, they're supposed to care for the people of God. This is common language in the Bible. But what they're doing is they're, they're shepherding themselves. They are fleecing the flock, if you will. They are using the people of God for their own gain, and they're all about their own appetites. If you want to see this, just go watch any religious channel. It's the sad truth of men fleecing people who do not know any better of their hard-earned money for their own financial gain. And if you, don't want to, if you want to see other levels, it's people doing it for all sorts of different reasons. But here's the idea. Is these, she- these people, are, it's evident that they are not of God because they are not caring for the flock, which they've called to do. They are using the flock to gain gain. And so we go on, and we see this. They're waterless clouds swept along by the winds. What does that mean? They, water, in this area, waterless clouds is the idea of this. Um, in this area in Palestine, it's arid. It's very dry. And so when you got a big cloud that showed up, people were like, yes, rain, okay? It's like, it's like this. It's like people, it's the opposite but similar. It's like people in the Pacific Northwest, like Oregon, when a sunny day happens, they're like, oh, my gosh, the sun. In Palestine, it's different. It was dry. And so when this cloud would show up, a big storm cloud, like now we're like storm clouds show up. We're like, I need to mow my grass. It's 7,000 feet tall. Okay, I think I saw a velociraptor in there the other day. Like, that's when we're like, please stop raining. But over there, they're like, oh, yeah, rain is coming. Rain that's needed to, to grow crops and to subsist and to have life and drinking water at this time. And when they see this cloud coming, people would rejoice. Like, yes, we're going to get refreshment and nourishment. And you know what? He's saying these people, they seem to be these dark clouds bringing rain and bringing goodness, but they're waterless. That means they, that all the stuff they're saying is just hot air and comes to nothing. He characterizes them that. He goes on and he calls them fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead and uprooted. If you got a tree that's supposed to grow fruit, it doesn't grow fruit. You don't say, well, obviously the tree's fine. No, you say there's a problem. These people do not produce any spiritual fruit in their lives. They seem godly, but their lives are contradictory to that. Then it goes on and says they're called, he says they're wild waves of the sea crashing up foam, um, crashing up the foam of their own shame. Let me give you this idea. 
there are some days when you go to the beach. I'm from Panama City and, and Panama City, Florida. And when I go to the beach, you're expecting the Emerald Coast and just the white sands when I would go. But every now and then you'd have red tide or some kind of funky algae that would come on. And when the waves would wash up on shore, you're usually, you know, you get the idea, you get this idyllic idea that every time you go to the beach, it's going to be like, yeah, I'm going to go blue skies, just crystal clear water. I'm going to sit here, enjoy my day, and let the water just kind of lap over me. And that day gets ruined real quick. When the first time a wave hits you, you are now covered in algae or seaweed or something else that's disgusting. And it happens. And this is the idea here, that these people, because of their lifestyle, they're like waves crashing against the shore. And what they're leaving is this nasty foam. The nasty foam is their behavior and the outcome of their lives. And finally, we see this, that they're like wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. Here's the idea. One, they, they used to navigate in this time period using the stars. Thank God we got Google Maps, okay? I'd be lost all the time if I had to navigate by the stars, okay? Especially daytime travel would be tough, Okay? That's what happened. These are like wandering stars, ones that would get you off course. And what's, what's the deal? These people are preserved for judgment. So here is the, the thing he is trying to emphasize here is every one of these false teachers will produce bad things in their lives, and the ultimate outcome of following them is to be lost and to be fruitless and to follow after a fruitless teaching, follow after something that is going to lead down to your destruction. So these false teachings, these false teachers and their false attitudes are bad. I know that was a lot of, a lot of verses to say that, but you can't underestimate how sad it is to be close to the things of God but not know God. It is a great tragedy to be close to the things of God and not know God. And this is a warning. This is showing the outcome of their lives. So I want you to remember, be on the lookout for these ungodly teachers. See their attitudes, see their dangers. And I want you to know that. Be on the lookout for these teachers, but don't, don't become an alarmist or a conspiracy theorist. Let me say that again. Look out for these things, but don't make this, don't, don't let the look out for these false teachers, as bad as they are, and as bad as the false teachings are, and as bad as the attitudes are, look out for them, but don't let it make you an alarmist or a conspiracy theorist. You don't want to be the person who gets spiritually worked up about every little thing and is looking for error at every little place. The Bible... We'll, we'll make it clear what error is. You know that, right? There's not some hidden thing in the Bible. The Spirit of God wants to let you know it. He's not hiding anything from you. It's right there. It's plain. You may have to work a little bit to understand in its original context, but it's not like God's sitting, putting out there like, I've got some, some good stuff out there for people who are just nominally Christian, but for those of you who really, really want to work at it, we got some hidden spiritual truths. That never works out well in the Bible. It always leads to error. Always. So God's not waiting for you to be like there. Okay, I see this here. I found this number. This letter here relates to this number over here. And so I can find all of these different ways where I can be scared that people are going to come in and take our church over. Warning. Do you like people that jump off the handle at the smallest of problems? 
Do you love to be around such folks? Do you love to be around people that make mountains out of molehills? Don't you love it? If, if you do, you obviously know where you need to str- where you struggle in life, okay? Because here's the deal. Hey, can you imagine this? Hey, Tom, we're out of toilet paper. What? Tom gets mad, starts throwing chairs over, starts kicking windows. We can't be out of toilet paper. What are we going to do? Oh, we found some more. Oh, great. You noticed? It's like, seems like every year or two, these, this new spiritual, you know, deadly disease that will be found out there. Like, oh, no. The church has to watch out for this. And like the Bible hasn't been around for thousands of years and we're finding new things to be afraid of, there's enough stuff to be afraid of for crying out loud. And I want you just to be clear about this. Judgment is coming on false teachers. You should always be on the lookout, but you should always trust that if you are in Christ and you're seeking him, he's got you. You don't have to be worried about what the mark of the beast is because if you're in him, you won't take it. You know how I know that? The Bible says it. I don't know what it is, and most people don't either. Sidebar, okay? But it won't get you. Just like this, the warnings, the, the warnings are meant to scare us back to Jesus, okay, and to show us that where we lead, where, where our lives are heading apart from him. But don't you get this idea that, that he's got you too, okay? If you follow him and you seek him, and here I want you to know why you shouldn't be a spiritual alarmist. Spiritual alarmists who are looking for a heresy and false teaching around every corner, here's what happens. Most of the time, they become enamored with finding error, how many of you love that when you get somebody, like, like corrects your text you sent them? Um, you shouldn't have used that there. You should have used uh, there with the I-E-R or E-I-R. So you see, I even did it wrong. Some of you are like, I hate that guy, okay? E-I-R. How many of you love that? Thank you for correcting that small thing. You got the point, okay? Most of the time, spiritual alarmists become enamored with finding error, and in so doing, and most often, I've found most people who kind of tend toward this direction, they do this unintentionally, but they forget the importance of the pursuit of God. At, the po- at, 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 the, at seeking to find error everywhere, they forget that if we follow God and walk in truth, that darkness will look darker. Does that make sense? So here's the thing. Yes, we should always, I I hope you hear what I'm saying. Yes, look out for error. Yes, look out for sin. But don't let it become so that it becomes the the all-consuming passion of your heart to try to find error under every corner because you will probably find a lot of error, okay? But here is the good news. When we pursue Jesus and walk in the way, the truth, and life, didn't he say that about himself? Do you know what happens? His word is a lamp unto your feet and light unto your path. You don't have to worry about the darkness. You know why? Because you're following. You recognize the darkness, so many people who are spiritual alarmists are worried that we're going to fall off course in this way. The Bible has given us plenty of warnings to know what to look at and what to be scared of. On top of that, it's tell us to be vigilant. But most importantly, your job is to not to run and look after error. Your job is to run and look for Jesus. You're free. 
from having to find fault everywhere because you will find it. But you are free now to run towards Jesus. That was long and free. It wasn't even right like, directly in here. But I just need you to know that because people get there. I want you to see that. And look right here in verse 14. I want you to know that here's why you should not be a spiritual alarmist is because God is going to take care of judgment. Look in verse 14. It was also about these that Enoch, the seven from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones. God and an army of angels, okay? A lot of us, remember, we think of angels wrongly. Okay, we think of angels as like little tiny cherubs, like, like, like not scary. You know, like, oh, look at the angels. Look at the 10,000 angels Jesus come with. This is not Care Bear, okay? This is not like, look at Jesus comes with his magical My Little Pony friends, okay? That is not what the idea. When he comes with 10,000 angels, it's like scary army angels, okay? That's why when you sing the God of Angel Army song that Chris Tomlin made, it doesn't make sense if you have an unbiblical view of angels. Because how wussy of an army would that be? Cherubs with diapers and harps. The God of Angels. I mean, just awful. I just, just the worst. Okay? And then we get this in verse 14. And also, it was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. The, the, the issue is this, and the main point, and we're going to have to deal with something here. This is kind of an odd passage, but one of the, the major point that is being expressed is this. God will judge those who are against him. We do not have to be the judge, jury, and executioner. We should watch out for false error, put out false teaching and false attitudes when necessary. But ultimately, do you know who we need to trust for judgment? God, because he's going to judge correctly. Now, I'm going to deal with something real quick. He quotes Enoch. He's actually quoting the book of First Enoch, which is not a biblical book. It's not inspired. What I mean by inspired is it's not given of the Holy Spirit through men. It's not supposed to be part of the Bible. It's non-canonical. It's written as, it's a, it's a suit, it's called a, um, it's, it's written in a, this, this style, which is, they would, they would give somebody, they would use a name, and they would write, they would write underneath this name of a person who was known in the biblical literature, and they would do this in such a way that they would write in this person's name to give their, their writing credence, and for people to look at and read it, and they would talk about, they would speak prophetically using this person's persona as a way to speak. And so Enoch, we see, and he shows up in the Bible in Genesis chapter 5, and he is one of the descendants of Adam after the fall, and it's got this really, there's only like three or four lines about him in the whole Bible, and one of them is really cool. It says, Enoch walked with God, and God translated him to heaven. He never died. There's only a couple of people that ever happened to I don't know anything about Enoch other than that. You don't either, okay? But here's the thing. That, and during, during, the, during the second temple period after the Israelites had come back from their first captivity and the temple was being rebuilt, somebody writing as Enoch, okay, taking on his persona, writes this kind of treatise, okay? He writes this book in which he talks about several different things. You can actually go online and read First Enoch. I want to make it very clear. It is not inspired scripture. It's non-canonical, okay? But it's this book that trying to, it's helpful to people to read it and to understand. It's similar to kind of an allegory in some ways, okay? For example, The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, okay, the C.S. Lewis book, there's some allegory, allegorical elements into that as well. And so you see the allegory there? That 
is trying to help you understand kind of a little bit, uh, kind of give you a picture of Jesus Christ. This person's writing like Enoch. He's not Enoch, but he's writing this to give some spiritual benefit to some people. But it's not can- canonical. Now, I have no idea why Jude decides to quote it. Okay? But Paul quotes people, quotes from books that aren't inspired all the time. For example, in Acts chapter 17, he quotes from a poet of the time to, in, in order to get to a gospel presentation of the people on Mars Hill. So here's the thing. He is not saying, Jude is not saying that the first Enoch should be in the Bible and it's inspired, okay? Because it's not. Go read it. It's not, it does not hold muster to the rest of the Bible. Secondly, when quoting it, he is finding popular literature of the day and he's saying even this literature says that, that judgment's coming, on the ungodly, and he's using this as an example of the fact that people know instinctively that judgment is coming. You wanna know an example that we know that judgment is coming? How many disaster flicks have to be made before we realize that the apocalypse is written on our hearts? It's coming. And so I want you to get this fact, he's saying, guys, Watch for error, but be encouraged that no matter how much error persists, yes, you need to be on, on top of it, but God will judge rightly. And then finally, and here's where I want us to, to land, okay? Yes, be on the lookout for spiritual error. That's what this book's about. But don't be an alarmist or a conspiracy theorist because you know why? The wicked, the wicked's behavior, the wicked behavior of the ungodly is evident especially to those who are walking in Christ's truth. And here's an example of the sin of these false teachers being, being evident. And he ends it in verse 16. He says, these are, talking about the false teachers, they're grumblers. This is a word that is kind of, you, you remember in English class you have the onomatopoeia, you know, it's a word that sounds like what it means, okay? You know what I'm talking about? All right. Maybe. <laughs> I don't know, Matt. You used a big word there. That's, that's a, a literature word. And it's not even that big. It's just, it's like, like, bam, whack, okay? It sounds like what you're doing. That's the lowest brow <laughs> example that could come to my mind. So there you go. I'm doing Batman stuff for you. This word grumblers has the idea of, and so here's the idea. They, remember, we go back, they're following in the way of Korah. What happens? Korah, they, the, the rebellion of Korah, they rejected Moses' leadership, the person that God had put in charge. They rejected that. And what did they do against Moses? They grumbled and complained. And so here is the hallmark of an attitude of someone, a dangerous attitude or a dangerous teacher that can hurt the church or a dangerous teaching that can, that can hurt the church. It involves grumbling. You would think that just kind of expressing your displeasure because things aren't exactly how you want them to be, you think that would be benign. But here, the power, behold the power of grumbling. When grumbling comes together, it becomes a loud grumble and it becomes toxic very quickly. It is important not to be passive aggressive and to be a grumbler in the church because that is a sign of these false teachers. They grumbled against those who they grumbled against those who God had appointed to be leaders. Now, there again, remember, there is a place for at 
like legitimate disagreement, legitimate constructive criticism, but grumbling never works out well. It's never seen as a good thing in the Bible. So grumbling. So watch that attitude in your heart, grumbling. Well, I'll watch it in my heart too. And then it says this, they also, they're called malcontents, these people, okay? Remember, you can judge, you can judge these people by their character. You can judge a fruit by its, you know, or you can judge a, uh, a tree by the fruit it produces. Jesus would say that, okay? You can judge, you know, if it quacks like a duck and walks like a duck, it is a duck. If these people are claiming to be teachers, but they're living falsely, they're obviously ungodly, and it's become evident, especially those who are walking in truth. These people are grumblers. They're malcontents. This means they're fault finders. The internet has given us free reign to be fault finders at every every instance in our life. We can express our displeasure about anything at any time and anywhere to anyone and largely do it anonymously. Do you know what that has done for most of us, myself included? It has given us all a very critical spirit. And none of us like people who have a critical spirit, but most of the time we possess a critical spirit. And these people have critical spirits. Do you know why? Because they're not taking every thought captive to Christ. And so I want to warn us as a church that we need to watch out for teachings, teachers, and attitudes that lead us to a place where we will become we will become fault finders and malcontents, finding things and er- finding fault in everything. If you're a person who finds fault, or if you're concerned that you might be a fault finding person, I want you, when you have a new experience, to write down what you think about it. If the first th- three or four things about that experience are negative, you might be a fault finder. If you find it hard to say good things about people, you might be a fault finder. And I'm telling you, in a church, people are going to let you down. Because you're redeemed by Jesus doesn't mean you're perfect. You guys know that, right? And we can find fault easily. You want to find fault in me? You're not going to have to look too far. Same with our elder team. Same with anybody. But the, the great news here is these that we can have forgiveness from those things and we can walk not having to be perfect but having to love one another and to forgive each other in grace because of our faults. These false teachers, they are using their grumbling and using their fault finding to take control. And we go on and we see this. It said they are not that. They are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. We've seen that. They follow their own sexual desires. And then it says they are loud mouth voiced uh, boasters, which means that they can't, they don't have any, they, they don't, they can't rest on the truth that they know. They have to make sure people know how great they are, and so they're loudmouth boasters, okay? If you see any of those attitudes in yourself, you need to check them. If you see any of those attitudes in teachers or in teachings that are coming out, you need to check them because that's evidence that, that sin is there. It's evidence that there is dangerousness. And then we see this in verse 16, they show favoritism to gain advantage, you see these false teachers. If you're walking in, you don't need to be an alarmist. If you're a believer in Jesus following after him, you know why? Because as you follow the truth, you're going to see these behaviors in yourself and other people, and you're going to know they're not of God. And you're going to know that showing favoritism for gain is wrong. You're going to understand that being a grumbler for grumbler's sake is wrong. You're going to understand that being a fault finder is wrong. You're going to see false teachers. You're going to recognize them as wrong, and you're going to see it in your own life, and you're going to recognize it as wrong, and you're going to see the real danger, and you're going to turn from it. Let me give you an example. And so here's the thing. 
So many times we do need to talk about sin and we do need to talk about danger and we do need to talk about all those things. We do need to be on the lookout for them. But the best way to be on the lookout for sinful behavior in our lives is to run and seek after Jesus hard. Heard this before. When they're trying to get somebody to understand what a counterfeit bill, like a, like a monetary bill looks like, you know what they do? They don't place them around counterfeits. They place them around a lot of real money so they can understand the weight of it and they can know the identifying marks. And so what do they do? They don't put them around a lot of false things. They put them around a lot of the real deal. As many of you know, and I've told you, and as you've probably seen, I have a problem with sneakers, okay? I buy a lot of them. I have too many sneakers. I mean, really, I'm not kidding. I have a problem, all right? And I have them for, I mean, I buy Adidas and Nike, and I mean, I got, it's a problem, all right? I really, I guess, I, I can't even tell you why, all right? I just like, I see, I see, like, I go to a shoe store, and I'm like, I want those, okay? And <laughs> I buy them a lot of the times, and my wife's like, you got too many shoes! And I do have too many shoes, okay? When, when we were living, and we lived on a, when I was a little boy, we lived in an island uh, in the Pacific Ocean called Guam. Okay, on that island, uh, when to, well, for us to leave, we'd have to go to Hawaii, or sometimes we have to go to Korea and then Hawaii to come back. When we would go to South Korea, not North Korea, when we go to South Korea, we would stop and we go to the market there, and they would have all sorts of shoes that you could buy and other things that are, are uh, like you know, it would be like stuff that would cost us a lot over here, name brand stuff, Nike, Adidas, and other things like that. And as it would go. You would pick up the shoe and it looked just like, or seemingly from a distance, looked just like the real shoe that you would buy in the United States, okay? But for a fraction of the cost. We got to this place where we could tell the difference between a knockoff and the real one, okay? Now I could definitely do it. I didn't know too much about shoes, okay? I mean, you just pick it up, like the weight's not right. And so one of the things that they would do is they would actually, they would make the shoe exactly using the, it was made in the same place that the other Nikes, like the Michael Jordan shoes or whatever would be made, but they, instead of using glue that was, um, Im, you know, that was impervious to water, they would use glue that was solvent in water. So if you rain and you're wearing these shoes, we saw it, like they would fall apart because the glue used would just completely disintegrate. Now, Here's what I'm saying. When we look at all, when we've been looking at all these passages, and we've been being, it, it seems kind of scary as we look at all these false teachers, and we're looking at all their false behaviors, and we're looking at all their sin. It can make us alarmist because we do see that sin is all around us. That there are dangers inside and outside of the church. There's dangers in our own hearts of these attitudes that we can have, and so sometimes it, it will cause us to be an alarmist. And and I want you to know, you should be alarmed. But there's a difference between being alarmed and an alarmist. And here's the difference. Where is your heart focused? Is your heart focused on finding fault, on finding Jesus? The pursuit of God will, will inevitably show us our sin and cause us to be alarmed by it. The pursuit of error, most of the time we find self-righteousness, we find fault because it's easy to find, but we don't find God in it because we somewhere along the line we have missed that our chief pursuit is not to make find everything that's wrong, but to find Jesus. 
Bible, t- Bible teachers talk this, talked about this so many times. A.W. A. Tozer, you have the pursuit of God. There, we need to run hard after him and his truth. And while we're doing that, we will be, we will be aroused to see the, the sin, and we will be alarmed by it. But our heart's desire is to go after Jesus. And in so doing, he will make evident what is wrong, and we will be alarmed by it and come to him. But what is your pursuit? Are you pursuing finding fault, or are you pursuing Jesus? Let's pray. Let's bow our heads for a minute. God, we thank you for this time. Thank you for this, um, this worship we can, we can experience. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the cautions it brings. We pray that, God, you would uh, let us be passionate pursuers of who you are and that we would not pursue, that we would not pursue fault finding, but we would pursue Jesus. And in so doing, you would show us our sin and the danger that befalls your church if we live in it. God, help us to follow you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.